According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace of knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We will be once again back in Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. Proverbs chapter 9. We're looking at a grace invitation that is delivered here in verses 4 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. And she uh, didn't build it so she could hide there or uh, live by herself or keep us out. She has built a house and is now inviting folks to come and to join her in what she has prepared. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has set her table. And when you look at all the preparation, building the house is just step one, and it's the one that goes by as rapidly as possible. She's hewn out her seven pillars. Okay, well, I want to know more. I want to know about the doors. I want to know about the windows. I want to know about the rooms. I want to know about the... uh, None of that matters. The only thing that matters is that she has a house, and you're welcome to come. And when you do come in, there's going to be some feasting going on. All right, there's food, there's wine. And we're going to partake. We're going to become partakers. And what a blessing we have here to consider the food and the wine and what's been prepared. So she has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. And so here in this gospel call, we have a grace introduction. We have a grace invitation that wisdom is sending forth and it must be responded to. The invitation is to whosoever, but it's not uh, universally applied because volition must respond. That an invitation must be accepted. A gift has to be not only given, but received. And so uh, the uh, turn in, the come, the eat, the drink, the forsake, the proceed, all of these are expectations on our part uh, in terms of the response that is necessary to respond by faith to the provision of God in this, uh, in this uh, instance. And so uh, we, got, I think, got a good start on it a week ago, and I'll get back to it again here this morning. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to sanctify our thinking, to bless our time in his word today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we rejoice in the blessing that we have to assemble together. I thank you for this opportunity today, and we call upon your faithfulness to set aside distractions, to hedge us about, to protect us, hinder anyone that would want to come in here and stop what we're teaching or or bring us to harm. Father, bless us and protect us, and bless your word as it goes forth. Might we be edified, might we be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man, not only to know these truths, but to submit to the authority of your word, that we might live it out to the glory of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. All right, as we deal with this invitation, I may try to do a couple of other things as well, just by introduction and getting started. I think um, uh, we have here in these verses a marvelous text that if uh, if I was an Old Testament believer, if I was a Jewish believer, say in the Maccabean era or the Old Testament times, and I was wanting to take a passage of Scripture and use it evangelistically, to uh, my children or to my neighbors or friends or enemies or whoever, if I wanted to find a text of Scripture to use evangelically, this would be one I would turn to, all right? I'm starting to keep a file of Old Testament soteriological passages, things that, uh, that is so easy for us in the New Testament, in the, in the body of Christ with hindsight to be able to see the finished work of Christ, right? To be able to go to uh, Romans 8 or go to John 3 or go to Acts 16.31. Or, I mean, just think of what are your favorite go-to passages when you're giving the gospel to an unbeliever, all right? And, and you probably have some. I expect you've got some go-to passages that you like. I also expect most of them are New Testament passages. Uh, I dare say for many of us, 
all of them are New Testament passages. And that we would struggle to find an Old Testament passage. And, and primarily because, of course, in the Old Testament, the Messiah is still coming. All right? We don't have the, the blessings of, of hindsight or the completed work of, of Christ on the cross and so forth. But here we have, come, uh, we have Isaiah 55. We've got other passages that I think are useful that can be used in that sense. And why is that important? I think it's vital. And I want to do additional studies on it, particularly since we've had an Isaiah series, a Jeremiah series. We've had so many Old Testament series. And, um, and I think we get criticized. Dispensational churches get criticized that we preach different modes of salvation, which is not true. Salvation is always by grace through faith. It is always in the person of Jesus Christ, even before the name of Jesus Christ was known. It's in the person of the coming Messiah, the person of God himself, God the Son, who is, who is, who is promised. See, And so we have clues. And, and so I think in many respects, um, uh, it's, it's a study that, that I want to expand upon, and I'm not going to teach it today, but um, we were in Hebrews during our, our training session here just a few moments ago. And uh, we were in chapter 10, we were in chapter 12, but there's a verse in chapter 11 that, that I keep chewing on, that I keep coming back to, because it talks about by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Well, where does faith come from? You know, faith is not just wishful thinking. Faith is not wanting something to be true. Faith is trusting in the faithfulness of the one who promised. And so when it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, that means that Abel was applying doctrine and Cain was rejecting doctrine. So in Hebrews 11.4, by faith. The reason why the, the, the lamb sacrifice that Abel brought was better than the vegetable sacrifice that Cain brought was not because uh, of, of anything artificial or anything intrinsic to Abel or intrinsic to Cain. It was by faith faith. It was based upon the standard of the Word of God. Now they didn't have a canon of Scripture, but they had the spoken Word of God. They had the prophetic utterance. They had the expressions of doctrine that Jesus Christ himself taught as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, as he taught Adam and Eve. See, Adam and Eve learned this doctrine and taught their children about the, the, the necessity of blood sacrifice, the necessity of the animal dying so that sinners could be viewed as righteous in God's sight. And that's the only way that Hebrews 11.4 can be factually true. That by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Faith has to be grounded in the faithfulness of God and His promise. And so there was content. There was content from uh, Adam all the way to Moses. See, and even those that do not sin in the likeness of Adam. See, the, 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 Rome, the book of Romans makes a big deal about pre-Moses. What's the big deal about pre-Moses? Pre-Moses is pre-canon. Pre-Moses is pre-written scripture. See, and so from Adam to Moses, even when there's no written scripture, there is still the verbal message through the, through the prophets that we know existed. So, how is it by faith Abel could bring a sacrifice? How is it by faith Abel understands substitutionary blood atonement? <laughs> right? The whole doctrine that you and I can now categorize, and we can do so with the help of many New Testament passages, Old Testament passages. What was No Testament evianity like for those people? Remember that expression? Y'all thought I was crazy when I made that up. All right? There's New Testament Christianity, Right? Old Testament Moseyanity, remember that? You thought I was crazy when I made that up too. Okay, Moseyanity, the writings of Moses and the other Old Testament authors. You can call that, you, you want to call it Christianity, that's fine. It's just pre-Christ Christianity. Uh, but it's Old Testament Moseyanity. We have New Testament Christianity as well as Old Testament Moseyanity, right? We've got the complete canon. But before Moses, what do they have? Before Moses, what do they have? nothing. There was no written text. So I called it Noseyanity instead of Moseyanity. No scripture. And it was the No Testament. We have the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the No Testament. Because they had none. They had none. And so uh, you can think of it as Eveanity. And Eve, of course, was the gospel promise that they had, was that the seed of the woman is going to come. 
and crush the serpent's head. The promise they had on the day they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15, is that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. That was their gospel. And they got saved believing that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And they trusted that. That was their gospel. That was all the information they had. They didn't have what you and I have. They didn't know about Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. They didn't know about Jesus on the cross. They knew that the seed of the woman was coming. And the seed of the woman would be the future provision for fallen mankind in Adam. And Adam and Eve taught Cain and Abel that. We know that because Abel brought his sacrifice by faith. He had the doctrine and he applied the doctrine. It's the only way to have by faith as the description of that sacrifice. So bringing it back here now, and and on my way now back to Proverbs, I'll leave Hebrews, and I'm going to stop at John chapter 3. And as I stop at John chapter 3 on my way back to Hebrews, on my way back to Proverbs, I have incredulity on Jesus' part. Jesus was the original uh, Vizzini from Princess Bride. All right? Jesus was the original inconceivable guy. If you've ever seen that movie, right? Inconceivable. Jesus found it inconceivable that a teacher of the Pharisees such as Nicodemus failed to comprehend the necessity of the new birth. All right? And so Nicodemus comes to him by night, a ruler of the Jews, and he comes to him and says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you think it'd be straightforward. And what did Jesus base that on? Why did he make that statement in verse 3? What Old Testament passage was he quoting? What Old Testament concept was he quoting? What, what were the gospel texts of the Hebrew canon? That's what I'm driving at this morning, because I think Pro- Proverbs 9 is a gospel text of the Hebrew canon. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? I don't know how old he was. He was probably, you know, back then, 47 was old, you know. Um, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? You know, I mean, it's just, it's it's, it's nonsensical. It's ludicrous, you know. Um, How, how, you're only born once. You leave mother's womb and and that's it. You're, you're, you're done. How how do you, how do you re-exit the womb a second time? And, and a birth is a, is a once and for all kind of thing. You're born, you're born. That's it. See, which by the way, it's a beautiful illustration of eternal security, isn't it? <laughs> you know, because when you're born, you're born and then that's it. You're a son and here you are. So, but Jesus' incredulity here, it's, it's inconceivable to him. In verse 11, he says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? And in that incredulity comes about in verse 10. And I think in what I'm going to do in my future studies in in putting together this Old Testament, uh, this Hebrew canon soteriological uh, study, is the incredulity doesn't come in verse 5. The incredulity comes in verse 10. And I think that's that's, uh, important. Because he has this question in verse 4 about entering into the womb a second time. And then Jesus answers in verses 5 through 8. And in 5 through 8, he's not incredulous, but he does warn Nicodemus against being incredulous. He says, do not be amazed that I said you must be born again. But still, I think the content of 5, 6, 7, and 8 should have been clearly known to any teacher of Israel based upon the Hebrew manuscripts. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Okay, do not be amazed. I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is an invisible thing. It is a spirit thing. And it is, a, it is not new to the New Testament. It has always been the reality. Every, every unbeliever that ever got saved, from Adam and Eve to Abel to, to every Old Testament saint, was born of the Spirit. All right? was born again. And so Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? 
Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? And so that incredulity there tells me, you know, when I see this incredulity on Jesus' part, and that, um, <laughs> some people don't like that, that, that he, was, he was gobsmacked, right? He was just beside himself. He was just, you know. He, the same thing when, when his mother caught him in the temple and why are you here, and, and, right? He said, did you not know I must be about my father's business? And that did you not know, Jesus didn't know that Mary didn't know, right? Jesus was ignorant of Mary's ignorance. Jesus is ignorant of Nicodemus's ignorance. And, and he's, he's, do not be amazed. Did you not know? Are you, are you uh, the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Okay. And, and what, what I think some people don't recognize, of course, is that Jesus in his humanity was not tapping into his omniscience, that he didn't know everything, that he was learning, that he was limited to what he understood. And so sometimes he was mistaken informationally. He was never a sinner. He wasn't, you know, he was wrong, but he was never a sinner. Well, I mean, we're clear on that, right? I got in trouble in the Life of Christ series. I was teaching this and folks were a little uneasy. Uh, how, that our Savior could be mistaken. Yes, he was factually incorrect on many things. Because he doesn't know all these things as he operates in the limitations of his humanity. So he was ignorant of Mary's ignorance. He was ignorant of Nicodemus's ignorance. He was ignorant of many things in his earthly walk. And so he came to learn and he came to know. And in part, that's important because we're he had to be ignorant to be like us. <laughs> Otherwise he's not our substitute, Right? I'm thankful that he was ignorant because that means an ignorant guy like me can get saved by grace through faith in, in Jesus Christ. All right, so the content of 5 through 8 in the contrast of that which is flesh is flesh and that which is spirit is spirit is understood in the Old Testament. And it's understood in the Old Testament and is taught in the Old Testament. And I believe that the distinctions between the earthly and the heavenly, the visible and the invisible, the seen and the unseen. I think we can see it in Job. We can see it in the Psalms. We can see it in the Torah. We can see it in the prophets. And I think this will be the key that will help us to unlock these Hebrew canon soteriological passages such as Proverbs chapter 9, Isaiah 55, other passages. Okay? More and more of them would get added later. Okay? And, and keep in mind, just because we talk about pre-Moses, right? The No Testament Evianity, pre-Moses. So that takes us from, and I, whatever, do you, do, you, do you like the usher dates? Do you like 4004 B.C. for Adam? Or I like 6000 B.C. Um, using the Septuagint dating. But either way, from, from 4000 B.C. to Moses in 1500 B.C., there's no canon. We don't get a canon until 1500 B.C. with the, with the Torah. Okay? With the Job and, and the Torah. And then... We don't get all the canon all at once either, okay? There's a, from, from, there's a thousand year period of time when the Hebrews were receiving their canon. They didn't get Proverbs until Solomon in a thousand BC, okay? So they didn't get Proverbs 9 until Solomon. Although I suspect David gave it to Solomon. So David had it prior to a uh, thousand BC. All right, now let's come back to Proverbs 9 then. So they had this promise. They had the seed of the woman promise. They had the necessity of blood sacrifice. They had the message. I mean, you look at all the doctrine Job had with no canon. And I think it's comprehensive. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. They knew redemption. They knew resurrection. They knew um, much that uh, we think, how do they know that without a canon? (laughs) Okay? So, she has sent out her maidens. I believe that they were agents of invitation. The maidens were set out. There's a lot of commentary argument about why the maidens were sent out. Um, uh, were they sent out of the room because it's a, it's, a, it's a privacy thing, it's modesty, you don't want maidens in the room feasting with these drunks? Uh, no, I, don't, I think it's a modesty issue. I think it's the, the maidens are the helpers, they're the servants. They're the ones that are going out and they're assisting in bringing in the, in the uh, folks that are coming in and then they will return as the guests come in and they will be uh, maidens and assistants and servers and so forth. At least that's my understanding here. Uh, who, so here's the invitation. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. 
Whosoever will may come. And I love that. Whoever is naive. Do you have a need? (laughs) Do you need the wisdom of God? Because we don't have it. It's not in ourselves. Let him turn in here. It's the one place you can find it. It's the only place where salvation can be provided. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come. Come. Okay? You're not being forced to. You're being invited. And it's left to your decision to either obey the gospel or not. To come or don't come. Eat of my food. Drink of my wine. These are the metaphors for faith. The pictures of faith throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. So that's what we're dealing with here. This is main point two in the outline, dealing with wisdom seven pillared house and uh, sub point F, which I have not. We talked about pillars. There we are. Sub point F. Wisdom's invitation is a grace invitation. It is a grace invitation. It must be volitionally accepted. As the naive turns in, the naive turns to enter wisdom's palace. uh, The naive wasn't headed there. It requires a turn. Because left to themselves, the naive is going to hell. I mean, left to themselves, the unbeliever is not going to find God. No one comes. No one seeks. He he went, he searched, and there was no one. Left to themselves, no one comes because they're not headed that direction. It requires a turn. All right? We understand from the New Testament, of course, we understand that it requires the Holy Spirit to be at work. The Father has to be drawing. The Spirit has to be convicting. There has to be a work, a grace work of God in the heart of the unbeliever that prepares them to make that turn. If that doesn't happen, no one's turning, right? But the invitation must be volitionally accepted as the naive turns in to enter wisdom's palace. And it's a fun word study on sewer. Sewer, C-U-W-R. Sometimes, uh, you know, we tell people to get your mind out of the sewer. Um, today, I want you to get your mind in the sewer, okay? I want all of us to get our minds in the sewer. That's the Hebrew word, sewer, C-U-W-R. Number 5493 is the strongest number. It has 297 uses. Most of them are very boring. It just means to turn, you know? You turn and you saw something. You turned and you spoke to. You turned and whatever. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's very Hebrew to turn and do something, to arise and go, to arise and depart. Um, the, the Hebrew language likes to kind of prep things, like fix into, right? Well, turn, when you're turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God, that's what it's about. But the same turn, it's like repent, the same turn can be used in a good way and a bad way because you can also sewer away from God. You can turn from God back to your sin. And that's not a turn you want to make, right? So the idea of repent or turn or change, uh, change for its own sake may not be a good idea. Because if you're changing from something good to something bad, don't do that. So understand the vocabulary doesn't always bail you out. Uh, Sewer, by the way, uh, is used here in Proverbs 9. It's also used in Proverbs 13, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 22. I think we saw those a week ago, but I don't mind seeing them again. Proverbs 13, 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. So if you don't have teaching, what are you vulnerable to? (laughs) The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. We've seen this already. Um, The concepts here. To turn aside from the snares of death. There is a path. This is a fallen world. We are fallen creatures in a fallen world. And if we don't turn to the only source of provision for that life, there is no other place to turn to. I can appreciate that. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death, that one may turn away from the snares of death. You know, you find the motivating value there in the fear of the Lord and what it is that motivates you to turn away, to turn away. You know, there's a 
There's a sin temptation. Your flesh is screaming at you. The world is screaming at you. The devil is screaming at you. You get all these influences screaming at you saying, do this, it'll be fun. Well, do you fear the Lord? If you fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord will turn you and you will turn and you will say, no, no part of that. Say, no part of that. Then finally, Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not sewer from the truth in the way he should go. He will not turn from the way he will go. This is a principle of wisdom. It's not a promise. There are exceptions, of course. This is the normal pattern for how it's designed. That believers who train up their children from the youngest of ages in the Word of God, you have benefited them for the rest of their life. All right? Clearly, of course, there's other principles that are also true in that a child can defy their training. A child can defy the Word of God. But as a general rule, same way we taught this, don't confuse a promise with a principle because I've seen too much heartache of Christians that apply that, that, that demand an absolute, without exception, promise out of a principle. And, and the Bible doesn't work that way. And I'm sorry if your child has departed from the truth. But your child's not old yet either. <laughs> okay? Your child's not old yet. In their teens, in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s. Okay? You're not old in your 40s. Relax. Well, okay, you're getting there in your 40s. But... <laughs> You're not over the hill, but you can, you can, you can see the other side. Um, when he is old, he will not depart from it. There's still a foundation in there. I don't care how far they've drifted. Inside of them is that doctrine that you've put in there, the Holy Spirit put in there. All right? And uh, it can bring them back. It can absolutely bring them back. Pray for that. The invitation must be volitionally accepted. And you'll notice in all these uses, in all these uses, we are, the, the person involved is responding either to the word of God, the wisdom of God, the fear of God, or, or all these things, all right? It equips, it is able, right? The word of God is prophet able. The issue though is, are we going to respond? Are we going to respond? Are we by faith going to respond? Faith is a response to the word of God. Are we going to unite the Word of God with faith? If we don't, then the Word of God won't profit us. We will not profit from the profitable Word of God. See? And that's, uh, that's clear. The metaphoric use of drinking and eating equates to the volitional response of faith when the person accepts and receives the divine provision. And this is true here in Proverbs 9. It's true in Isaiah 55. It's true in John 6. It's true in John 7. Different Bible authors, Old Testament and New Testament alike, enjoyed in using the eating and drinking metaphor as representative of faith. Right? Representative of trust. Representative of acceptance. We do the same thing. A lot of languages do the same thing, right? Even modern English idioms use the same concept, and I love it. <laughs> I love it when I get mocked for my faith, and they, the, the unbeliever, the skeptic, just criticizes me because I believe the Bible. And they can't believe that I just... They say, you, you, you trust this? Yes, I do. You mean all, this, all these myths, all, this, all these legends, all these lies, and you've just, you've just swallowed it all, haven't you? You see what they did there? You see what I did there? Oh, swallow? You mean eating? Swallowing? Drinking? You mean, oh, did I drink the Kool-Aid? Wait a minute. Why why do these idioms communicate what they communicate? Yes, I swallow this. Of course I swallowed this. And I'm I'm actually sad of what you've swallowed. You swallowed Big Bang. You swallowed uh, Darwin. We, we all swallow stuff because we trust stuff. We believe stuff. I believe God, you believe man. All right? But even their attack of my faith uses God's metaphor to do it. Because when they say, well, you swallowed a bunch of myths, they're using God's metaphor of eating and drinking to represent faith, 
to represent believing, to represent what it is that they are trusting in as being true. Isn't that beautiful? So uh, in Isaiah 55, which I think is another powerful uh, Hebrew canon soteriological text that would have been available to Old Testament believers from the 7th century onward, certainly would have been available to Nicodemus. (laughs) Okay. Ho, that's an attention getter, right? That, uh, That just grabs the reader's attention when you shout, ho. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. So it's a grace invitation. It's a whosoever message. The only, uh, the only necessity is the necessity that's true for everybody. We thirst, all right? We are separated. We have a, a, a thirst, okay? Come to the waters. It is a grace invitation. It is an offer, and it has an expectation of a response. The expectation of the response is come. You have a need. I'm providing that need, but you're coming to me the one place where that need will be provided for. Come. If you don't come, your thirst is not dealt with. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Again, you who. It is a universal invitation. Have no money. Total depravity of mankind, of course. We have nothing to commend ourselves. We have nothing to earn and deserve anything. We have no money. We cannot buy. We cannot buy what we need. Anything that we think is money has, has, is no currency in this economy. All right? If we think we have money, we don't. We have no money, but we have to come buy and eat. So how do you buy if you have no money? Well, you use somebody else's money. Right? I'm buying, he's paying. Uh, you use somebody else's money. Somebody else paid the price. Someone paid the price so that I can buy. But I still have to buy. Even though the price has been paid, I still have to buy with money that's not mine. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Now, I thought I needed water. Come to the waters. Yes, I do need water, but there's something more than water. Because this is not only a soteriological passage. Proverbs 9 is not only a soteriological passage. There is more than just receiving eternal life. There is then a walk after you receive eternal life. And that's the milk and honey. All right? That's the wine and the milk. And we see here. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? And this is, you don't have money, but you do have money. Because you have no money in verse 1, but because you're spending all your money in verse 2 for what doesn't satisfy. Right? Don't we sing that hymn? Satisfied. All my life long I had panted for I dropped from some clear spring. You know, and, and, and the dust I gathered around me was mocking. <laughs> I'm spending money on what? It's not satisfying. And your wages for what does not satisfy. Your wages is what you can earn and deserve. Your wages are what you're entitled to. Your wages are what you can be so proud of. Your wages is what you hold as a debt over your uh, employer or the person that, that promised you those wages. You have held up your end. You put in the hours. Now uh, you have a, an obligation. You can hold your employer to it. You have a, a, you have a just claim on that person's uh, provision to, to pay you because you put the hours in. You have a just claim. They owe you. And when they pay you, it's not grace. <laughs> when they pay you, it's your wages. You have a just claim. Grace is, there's no just claim. <laughs> grace means I, I deserve nothing. I'm, I'm a sinner. I have no just claim on God for anything. I don't deserve, I de- I don't deserve anything. Grace means I have no just claim. Wages, I have a just claim. And if he withholds my wages, I, can, uh, I have a just claim. I can go to a judge. I can take up arms. I can do something. If I, if I have a just claim, if he withholds my wages because he owes me, that's an obligation. I, I was obligated to work. He's obligated to pay. That's, that's work. That's horrible. We don't want any part of that. We want grace. Grace is, is a beautiful thing. And so uh, 
This is a grace invitation. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. What you can work for, earn and deserve and merit is not good. What I give you in grace is good. It's the only thing that is good. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. It requires listening to the word of God, responding to the word of God. There is a, it is a grace offer, but it has an expectation of response. Incline your ear and come to me. If you don't hear, you're not coming, but you still got to come. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. The, the response that's expected is a Davidic response. What was David's response? David's his response was humility. His response was to come. His response was to look at the, the giant and say he's taunted the armies of the living God. He comes to, to David with a, a spear and a sword and David says, I'm coming to you in the name of the, of the Lord God of hosts. And so when we respond with a David-like faith, see, I think after the Gospels, we talk about a childlike faith. After the New Testament and when Jesus, we talk about a childlike faith. Well, they didn't have the Gospels in the Old Testament. They had David. They had the greatest type of Christ ever in the Old Testament. And the pattern is a David-like faith. Every king that ruled Judah was, was, the criteria was whether he was a good king or a bad king. And if he was a good king, he walked with a David-like faith. If he was a bad king, he did not walk with a David-like faith. Here we have a David-like faith and a David-like covenant. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. This is the promise. And this, this goes back to seed of the woman. This goes back to the, the crushing of the serpent's head. You respond to the information you have at the time. You're trusting in God the Son for eternal life. And it's called a David-like faith. That's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. All right. And so we have an invitation here. We have the metaphor of eating and drinking. Let's get over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, eating and drinking, metaphor. Now the chapter begins with the feeding of the 5,000. And that's not a metaphor. <laughs> that really happened. All right? That's a miracle. And then uh, they, instead of responding to the miracle and listening to the message, they, uh, they just wanted him to repeat the miracle over and over and over again and, and feed them for the rest of their lives. And that's not the point. <laughs> Jesus says that God didn't send me to this earth to feed you for the rest of your life. He sent me here that you can really live. You can have eternal life. This food is just a single meal. How long does a single meal last? All right. So there's the feeding of the 5,000, and then they're going to track him down. They want to make him king. You can be our king. You know, if you give any mob bread and circuses, they're going to support you. All right, that's what we have today. We've got two political parties, and <clears throat> one of which seems to be dedicated to bread and, circu and circuses. And uh, now, sadly, it seems both of them are, are uh, distributing bread and, circ and circuses. And uh, everyone's all happy because we've got our own circus now. Ooh, <laughs> never mind. Um, P.T. Barnum will be our next president, and you talk about bread and circuses. Are you kidding me? So they want to make him king. And he says, no. And uh, in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You ate of the loaves and you were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but the food which endures to eternal life. See, this is right out of Isaiah 55. The concept is right here. The food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. It's the same grace offer that Isaiah was making. Come, eat of the bread I give. The Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. And therefore they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now here work is being used in two different ways. You can work for the perishable food or you can work for the eternal food. 
And if you work for the perishable food, well, then that's, that's work. But if you work for the imperishable food, if you want to work for the bread of heaven, how do you work for the bread of heaven? You believe. See, what must we do to work the works of God? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You believe in him whom he has sent. Salvation is not by works, unless you define this work here. This is the only work. You see how, you see how the verse does that? Salvation is by grace, not by works. Because the only work to get saved is this work. Believe. Okay? Which is not a work. Except in this verse. Okay? In the metaphor. In the contrast of working for earthly bread with a secular job, you know, doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, whatever you are over here, you can work for that kind of bread or you can work for this kind of bread. And the only way to work for this kind of bread, heavenly bread, eternal life, is to believe. All right, is to believe. So this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has said. But so belief, this is the food. And the metaphor of eating, the, uh, the uh, activity to eat is to believe, to apply faith. Uh, that's verse 29. And then, um, so now they say, well, okay, we'll believe you, but first you need to do a sign so that we can believe you. Didn't he just do that? Right? Uh, what sign do you do so we can see you and believe you? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Hint, hint, hint. You ought to provide food, uh, bread for us too. Uh, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which came down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Manna was just a a foreshadowing. It was typology. Jesus is the manna. So they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. He said, I am the bread of Zoe, the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And there it is. See, right there, underline that. Put a star by that. If you want to know what, it, what does it mean to come, like in Isaiah 55, come, or here, come, it's equated with believing. Same thing with eating. Eating, coming, believing, drinking. It's all the same. It is the application of faith. It is the expected response that God is making a grace offer And the expected response is to trust Him for the offer He's making. To accept Him. To receive it freely because it's being given freely. To believe. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. It's another great eternal security passage. This is Robert Jewell's favorite eternal security passage right here. Because if you, once you have come, once you have drunk, you will never thirst again. If you lose your salvation, then according to, uh, you know, this passage, another passage, well, then you're going to start thirsting again, right? Isn't, isn't the thirsty person the unsaved person? Well, if you will never thirst again, Jesus told the woman at the well, the water that I give, if you drink of the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. That's an eternal security passage, same as this one. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. See, seeing is not believing. Hearing is not believing. You can get, the gospel can be preached to you a thousand times and you're not saved until that expected response happens, until you believe. And so we have the, uh, the pattern of it there. All right. It's, uh, let me get down to verse 40. Let's see. And because it's so much bigger than us. Verse 36, I say to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me. All right. And so in addition to all the other dynamics at work, including our, uh, the grace gift and our faith response, there's also, of course, the, the uh, uh, predestination and, and the election that comes into this because we are gifts from the Father to the Son. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out eternal security. When you come to Christ, never again will Jesus Christ throw you away. Why? Because when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. We are a gift from the Father to the Son. Jesus Christ isn't going to throw away the gift the Father gave him. He loves the Father. 
He honors the Father in all things. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. It's all about the Father's will. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all He has given me, I lose not even one thing. Not even one. So much for Arminian theology. So much for losing your salvation. For you to lose your salvation means that Jesus has to lose something the Father gave to Him. And Jesus says, I'm not going to lose even one thing that the Father has given to me. If you think, see, here's the thing, and I've used this, you can use this. I've been face-to-face with Armenians that think they can lose their salvation, and I tell them, if you think that Jesus Christ can lose you, if you think that Jesus Christ can disobey the Father, then how are you even saved in the first place? You got saved because Jesus Christ cannot disobey the Father. He went to the cross and died so that you could have eternal life. If he could disobey the Father, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. But he can't disobey the Father. He did go to the cross. And he's not going to disobey the Father so as to lose you. It says, this is the will of him who sent me. That of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him. You hear the gospel, you respond. He will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. It's guaranteed. I'm not raised yet, but I have eternal life. I presently have it right here, right now. And Jesus Christ will be faithful to the Father and raise me up on that last day. All right. So we have the eating and the drinking, and it's all about faith. And they they don't get it. They grumble. You know, he keeps talking about eating me and don't grumble against me. But it's all about believing. Again, verse 47, believing, believing. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. Every last one of them, every manna eater, every human that ever ate manna died. Manna didn't give eternal life. Manna was just a meal for the day. But the bread which I give, the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. Came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, now the eating in verse 51 has already been defined as believing in verse 47 and verse 35 and all these verses. He who eats of this bread, he will live forever forever. The bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay? Boy, that threw us for a loop. Eating his flesh? (laughs) They didn't like that either. That sparked more arguments. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So this chapter is so powerful. I I go here a lot. I take people here. I I pray through this chapter. I love this chapter. In particular, I notice how Jesus doesn't back down. He's teaching them. He's answering their questions. He's teaching them. And, and they're getting more and more hostile. Every time they throw a question out, it's, it's less and less informational. It's more and more just defiant. How can this? How can this? How can this? And so what does he do? Does he back off? Does he say, oh, I'm sorry. Not very tolerant of me. I should be more... No, he doubles down. He says, oh, you don't like eating my flesh? Oh, well, you got to drink my blood too. How about, how about that? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. And it's, it's, it's remarkable the way they're, they're attacking Him with this orneriness, with this hostility, increasing, increasing, increasing in their ugliness. And what does He do? He increases and increases and increases in the very thing that, they, that they're hating, they're rebelling against. You know, if, if you get hostility as you preach the gospel, what are you going to do? Compromise? Change your tune? How about you give them more gospel? All right? Give them more gospel. It's the only provision for eternal life. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Is true drink. Uh, over to chapter 7 and verse 37. Again, it's drinking, it's coming. He finally, on the last day of the feast, he stands up and he starts to teach. And, and then the crowd is all amazed. Wait, is this the guy they're trying to kill? Wait, this is that guy? 
This can't, he can't be that guy. Wait, why have they not killed him yet? So in verse 25, is this the man they're seeking to kill and he's speaking publicly and they're not stopping him? The rulers do not really know that he's the Christ, do they? <laughs> you think? Yeah, he's the Christ. So Jesus cries out and says, you know me and you know where I'm from. I've not come from myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. And many in the crowd, verse 31, believed in him. They were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than these. I mean, when have we had a prophet doing miracles like this? So the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And uh, Jesus, in verse 33, for a little while longer I am with you. I go, uh, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where can he go that we can't follow? Where can he go that we cannot come? Is he going to go into the diaspora? Is he going to go among the Greeks? All right, now on the last day, he stands and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What do I mean by that? He who believes in me. You see it? Drinking equals believing. As the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Isaiah 44.3. Think about that. And but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right. Where the metaphoric use of drinking and eating equates to the response of faith. You can preach the gospel, but that person you're witnessing to there's an expected response. They must respond by faith. They have to trust Christ or uh, they are not going to receive eternal life. It's as simple as that. All right. Like I say, let's get back to Proverbs 9 now. It's not only soteriological. It's not only salvific. There's uh, salvation is step one. There is a Christian walk that's also spoken of. Or if you don't like uh, Christianity, it's a, there's a, a mosaic walk. There's an evaic walk. There's a, a regenerate walk. A born-again walk. All right. Typically speaking, a baby is born. They're not very mobile at first. But after they've eaten and drunk and after they've grown some, then they start to move. They, roll, they learn how to roll over. They learn how to crawl. They learn how to stand. They learn how to walk. Then you're in a lot of trouble once they get mobile. Okay, same thing in our Christian walk. We're born, we start eating, start drinking the pure milk of the Word, we start to grow, and it's not long, and we leave that baby status, and we start crawling, and we start walking, and we start running, and then we run with endurance, the race that's set before us. So step one is to receive life. Step two is to proceed in the Word of God. Forsake your folly and live. Receive life and proceed in the way of understanding. There's something after salvation. It's called the Christian walk, the Christian way of life. The whole point is not just to get saved and then wait to go to heaven when you die. There's stuff to do in the meantime. There's a walk. There's works that have been prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. The Great Commission doesn't just say get people saved. It says make disciples. Get them the gospel, get them born again, give them a life, and then start teaching them that way of life so that the Word of God shapes how they live. Colossians 1, 9 through 12. There is a, a salvation, and then there is a way of life after salvation. And then 1 Timothy 2, 4. Let's look at these. Are we familiar with uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Let's make disciples doesn't say anything about evangelism. Uh, let me go to Colossians 1. I've got six minutes left. Colossians 1. I'll allow you to look up Matthew 28 on your own. I will allow you to. I will, I will encourage you to look up Col- uh, Matthew 28 on your own. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. Remember, Paul had never been to Colossae. He didn't know these people. He might have known some of them. He might have met some of them, maybe in Ephesus. But he'd never been to Colossae. 
He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, I want you to notice that these are believers that he's talking to. In verses 3 through 8, that's clear. Verse 3 says, We give thanks to God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith. You see that in verse 4? Your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So faith, hope, love, the greatest of these is love. They had all three. This is a, this is a, a pretty neat Bible church that seems to have everything all together here. And, uh, but they are believers, the faith which you have in Christ Jesus. All right? And so you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. All right? And so you heard it, you understood it, it's in you, and you learned it. Verse 7, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So Paul had never met them, but he heard the full report from Epaphras. And he's excited about these believers here in Colossae. And what's he excited about? Proceeding in the Word of God. You get saved and then you proceed. So step one is to receive life. Step two is to proceed in the Word of God. And that's what we have here in verses 9 through 12. We do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with a knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That as a flock, they're walking in the will of God, seeking His will. That you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Wow, there's a high standard. Worthy of the Lord. How worthy is that? Well, how worthy is Jesus? How, uh, how reverent do you hold Him in the fear of the Lord? To please Him in all respects. You know, when you used to, as an unbeliever, you were all about pleasing yourself. Now you're about pleasing Him. See, the life that you used to live was all about you. The life that you live now, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you. Walking to please Him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work. You think the fruit of the Spirit is an important passage in Galatians 5? Without it, you can't fulfill this. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You'll notice now, there's the knowledge, being filled with the knowledge of His will. Now there's increasing in the knowledge of God. All right? And uh, the more I learn about Him, the more I learn who He is. The more I learn, not just about Him, but I learn Him. See, think about how well you know a person. And you know them better the next year. And you know them better the next year. You know them better the next year. Right? And 25 years later, do I, do I know Sharon better than I knew her in 1991? Hope so. Do I know the Lord better than I knew Him in 1973? I hope so. But the sad thing is, is how many people know about Him, but they don't know Him? You know, and I think that's a danger. I think there's a danger of... of studying theology but not having that personal intimate relationship with jesus christ whereby they know him how he thinks how he everything about him see increasing in the knowledge of god strengthened with all power yeah you know what that means that means you got to submit to some testing because it's only when we're weak that we're strong it's only when we submit to his testing that we will be strengthened with all power that will know him in the fellowship of his sufferings right according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness see believers want to obtain steadfastness they just don't want the the tough testing that go that produces that it's the testing of your faith that produces endurance so that you can be perfect and complete lacking in nothing and patience joyously giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. They want to share in the inheritance. They just don't like the fact that it requires us to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Finally, 1 Timothy 2.4. It is 10.59 and 30 seconds. Can I find 1 Timothy 2.4 in 30 seconds? I bet I can. 
Although I'm a bit of a flipper cripple these days since my Bible software makes it too easy. 1 Timothy 2.4 This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and diverse. No, not end diverse. Who desires all men to be saved and <coughs> to come to the knowledge of the truth. Who's the truth? The way, the truth, and the life. All right. God wants us to be saved and to know our Savior, to be intimate with our Savior, knowing Jesus Christ as Adam knew Eve, as Abraham knew Sarah, as a man knows a woman. We are to know Jesus Christ. Do we know Him? Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for Old Testament soteriological passages. Thank you for wisdom. Wisdom has prepared her house. And by your grace, Father, we live in that house. And we want to live there. We want to live there and abide in the Word of God. We want to be true disciples living in that freedom of the Christian walk. Thank you for these truths, Father. I pray that we would understand them, that we would believe them, that we would submit to them, that we would apply them that we would submit to every doctrine we've studied today as authoritative in our life. We're not here to please ourselves. We're here to live out this word. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.